Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing a topic that was discussed at the BIF conference from 2021. Again, this was a conference held in June of last year. And if you'd like to find out more about the topic we're going to discuss today, as well as the presentation that was made by Ben Kreitz, who's from the University of Kentucky, was a graduate student there, you can go to www.bifconference.com and you can see the archive presentation. The focus of our conversation is going to be today around the title of the topic that was discussed, Milk, Benefit, or Burden. And I'm joined today by two extension specialists at the University of Kentucky, Dare Bullock and also Jeff Limkuhler. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Appreciate the invitation, Aaron. Great to be here, Aaron. So appreciate your time today and for being willing to join us on the Beef Watch podcast. Before we talk about today's topic, if you could, each of you, just give a little background about yourself and your current role there with the University of Kentucky. Okay, I'll I'll jump in and get started. Uh, this is Dare Bullock. I grew up in Florida on a cow-calf operation uh, and then got my education at Auburn University and then the, the University of Georgia and uh, now been with the uh, University of Kentucky for it'll be 30 years in May. So uh, coming up on that anniversary here pretty quick. So my training is in beef cattle genetics. And so uh, we're fortunate at the University of Kentucky to kind of get to stay within our discipline area. So uh, my primary focus here in Kentucky is is on beef cattle genetics. And I have a primary extension role, do some uh, undergraduate education. Actually, Jeff and I, along with Dr. Les Anderson, team teach the beef cattle sciences class. But that's kind of it in a nutshell, Aaron. And again, I'm Jeff Lumcooler. I'm one of their counterparts here at the University of Kentucky. Uh, my training is in ruminant nutrition and have an extension appointment here at the University of Kentucky. And focus uh, mostly on nutrition, but some general management as well. We have a pretty strong stocker and backgrounding industry here in the state, and I help serve them on, on diet strategies and management strategies as well. Uh, Dr. Bullock and I are, uh, as you said, uh, kind of overlapping and work together on a lot of things. And this is a project that we thought was needed as we kind of start looking at some of the increases in Kind of the demands on on our beef cattle and as we think about nutritional needs as we go through we we've seen maybe a shift toward more fall calving here which makes us rely a little bit more on some of our stored forages which can sometimes be a real struggle for us getting it up in a timely fashion with mother nature throwing us rain in the spring so talk a little bit about the project that uh, is the source for the data we're going to talk about today Thinking about why did you initiate the project, what are some of the things that are driving the questions you have around this, how much milk or what's the benefit of milk in the beef cow? Well, I think from my perspective, one of the things is when the 2016 nutritional requirements for beef cattle came out, there was a uh, kind of a statement in there regarding the, the need for additional research, particularly when we think about milk components in beef cows. A lot of that data is um, relatively old and we've had some changes in our genetics. And I think the industry realized the need to, to get more of that data and updated data with today's genetics. So uh, we were looking at trying to gather some of that information and then think about how it relates back to the nutritional requirements of our cows. I guess from my perspective, Aaron, I, I've had a, a 
pretty, I guess, my entire career and, and actually long time now, I, I have been concerned about us trying to get too much out of our, our cattle. And, and it kind of went back to, I came through, I was on the livestock judging team and all back in the days when, when we were trying to shoot for maximum frame size. And that's what everybody's goal was. And we were very successful in, in getting humongous cattle. Uh, and I was concerned that, that we were doing it at a, at a great cost. And so actually for my PhD dissertation, I worked on mature cow weight at, at that time uh, because of that concern. And so I, I'm beginning here in the past 10 years or so, I've, I've started getting concerned about, we tend to be, it seems to me like having a similar trend now with milk uh, and particularly in some breeds that we seem to be really shooting for the moon again on a, on a single trait, as opposed to looking at the, the total cost of what we might be doing with that. So uh, that kind of initiated some of my concerns and then conversations that Jeff and I would have um, in terms of what those costs were, uh, sort of, you know, we, we both kind of picked and prodded back and forth with each other and, and kind of set up this project to kind of answer some of those questions that, that the two of us couldn't answer. And we're fortunate to have a pretty good group in the Southeast, several of us in the Southeast area. Uh, we have an extension uh, group and then we have a kind of a regional exchange group that meets uh, annually. And uh, we are always kind of always bouncing ideas across uh, each other to think about research and extension and outreach programs that we can collectively work on. And this is one that we visited with one of our colleagues. Dr. David Lawman out of Oklahoma State, who's doing some of this work and felt like we all kind of needed more information on this. So we reached out to um, a couple of our counterparts in Virginia and North Carolina and were able to pull a group of us together to kind of work collectively toward this. So talk about the project, I guess, share with our listeners how the project was set up, how the data was collected and, and what you're learning from that. As you probably know, it's it's really when you start talking, first of all, I guess I, I need to make it clear, you know, we, we talk about milk a lot of times in generality and, and how we do it with a genetic evaluation. What we actually are measuring is what we would call maternal weaning weight. Now, a lot of times we call that milk and milk is certainly the primary component of maternal weaning weight, but there's more to it than that. But we were just kind of wanted to get a grasp on on that milk EPD or maternal weaning weight EPD and and what that actually meant because because how it's measured and, and what we show it in our genetic evaluations is in pounds of weaned calf but in order to get those pounds of weaned calf we have to produce a certain level of milk to get that so what is the cost from an energy standpoint of that production so what we first decided was, is we have to try and, and determine what level of milk a cow is producing. And we thought that through and decided we needed to look at more than just the volume of the milk. Of course, we needed to know how much she was producing, but we also needed to know what were the components of that milk so that we could get a total energy that she was expending through her milk production. Unfortunately, there's not an extremely great way of, of trying to get that data. We settled in and, and through lots of discussion, as Jeff said, with Dr. Dave Lawman there at Oklahoma State, we, you know, settled on the weigh suckle weigh method. And that's just where you weigh the calf 
you know, we we have some adjustment periods, but basically you weigh the calf, then you let it nurse, and then you weigh it again. And based on the difference, that tells you how much milk it consumed. Now we had some periods prior to the way suckle way where they're not with the their mother so that uh so that you do want them hungry to be able to eat and so we had a, a i'm not going to go through the details of that process but 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 it's you know a fairly strenuous day to get to that point and then it's a simple thing like a, a calf urinating or defecating during that process of course is going to alter the results as well as, you know, the inaccuracies uh, of a scale trying to get to that, you know, a fairly small number to come up with those differences. But that's that's how we did it. And we also that was to get the volume and the, then to get the components. We also went in and we uh, took samples uh, and we did a component analysis on it to get the percent fat, the percent protein uh, and percent solids of the, the milk as well. So and then by doing you know, doing the math of the volume by those components, uh, we could then come up with a total calculation of, of energy expenditure. And so that was how we collected the data. And then that was then compared against what the, the milk EPDs of the, of the cows were to, to make the comparisons. Jeff, what did I leave out there? Nothing really. I mean, we, we settled on the way, suck away to try and increase the number of animals that we could get through and get observations on with the with the milking machine method that takes a little more time and we were trying to get a wider representation of genetic differences there because each of the herds that we were working with are using multiple sires and we wanted to make sure that we tried to get a pretty wide kind of uh, test population if you will and the and the groups of cows and not be limited so much on time um, the other thing I'll just say is uh, all the three herds were fall calving herds, so there's no spring calving herds represented in this data set. Talk a little bit about the herds. What would be the genetic makeup of those herds? What would be the you know, size and, and kind of background of how these herds were developed? The predominant makeup was uh, Angus and, and all of the herds. And anywhere from the the cattle from North Carolina State, I think that they're actually uh, a seed stock operation that they're running there. Um, ours at Kentucky, a, a large number of these would be registered Angus cows. Uh, but in the past uh, ten years or more, we've started doing a, a good bit more crossbreeding at our out at our farm. So we had both some Hereford and some Simmental influence there. And then uh, Virginia Tech had uh, both Angus and Simmental base for the most part in their cow herd. What was the age group of cows that you were working with here? Were you working with a cross section or how was that broke out? Yeah, that's a good question. We, we basically took everything that were three-year-olds and up. We didn't want any first calf heifers in the groups. So as far as age, um, it would be anything that was second parity on up. And then just to, to clarify, too, we did uh, for, for things like when we were looking at the comparison between the milk EPDs and the, the weaning weight of the calves, uh, those those weaning weights were certainly adjusted for age of dam. And, and we took that into consideration. We, we also went and we categorized those groups, um, basically looking back at the BIF guidelines for adjustments on weights. And we uh, did age categories then 
to be able to use that in the analysis as well. When you looked at your way suckle way data, obviously you've got cows calving over a period of time. How did you adjust that then based on where the cow is at in her, her stage of production relative to other cows with, that are with her as far as contemporaries? What we did was we, we tried to group them the best we could. Like at UK, we actually even divided them into two groups. And so we took three different way periods. We took, uh, we did the, the collections that when the calves were on average 45 days of age, 90 and then 135. And so just to, to, and most of the, what we did in terms of the, the study uh, was at the, the 90 day period. So like I say, UK, ours was fairly spread out. So we actually even had two groups. I, if I remember correctly, NC State and Virginia Tech both just had the, the one group, but that was the kind of the best we could do to try and alleviate those differences, like you say, because they do over the course of their lactation period, uh, there's, there's some significant differences in that level of production. But we then went back because we had birth dates on everything and we used days in milk as a um, variable in the model as well to account for that difference in age or a difference in uh, days in milk, I should say. Good point. So when you got the data together from these three different herds, what are some things you observed in terms of level of milk production and, and how that compares to maybe some of the historic data for what we have for those breeds, thinking particularly Angus, the Simmental, and you mentioned some Hereford. Jeff probably knows more about the, the significance or the history with others. I can tell you that, that what we saw was in, in terms of the, the pounds of milk production uh, at that 90-day period or about 90-day period, uh, we saw some variability. The uh, Virginia Tech and NC State, their cows milked a lot better than ours at UK. They were uh, at around 15 pounds of milk uh, per day in, in terms of their production. We were down closer to about 12 pounds with ours, uh, which is quite interesting, particularly considering we were taking body condition scores on the cattle too. And um, we tend to overfeed here at Kentucky uh, compared to Virginia Tech. So our cows were in much better condition, uh, but we're, we're significantly lower in terms of that level of milk production. Uh, Jeff, what, what's kind of some of the historical or expectations that we would see on milk? I think, you know, for us, or at least for me, perhaps I was thinking that we would have seen a little bit higher level of milk production based on some of the recent research out there believe some of the University of Illinois info is showing some of these cows are up in the 20 to 24 pounds of milk per day. But now they're, that data set had um, Simital influence. I think they were half-blood semis. And, um, you know, we, again, we're more basically straight bred or, or probably half at least Angus with a little bit of Simital in the Virginia genetics. Um, as far as milk components, there was some variability based on published data, but not a lot that actually came in pretty close to what we have for published data. I think what was more surprising to us is the variability in components. Uh, there's, there's an extreme variability from cow to cow on components. So um, I think that was our biggest, our biggest kind of eye openers when we think about managing a herd, we're managing to the average. And when you've got two or three different standard deviations difference between cows, it can certainly impact the nutritional needs. 
So strategic feeding is pretty important. You mentioned these are all fall calving herds. Do you think that environmental effect uh, would change or the fact that these cows were calving, lactating in the fall, uh, would that look different if these cows were spring calving? You know, for us, um, we were fortunate, and I believe the other two herds were as well, that we, we did have some stockpile forage to graze. And I'll be honest, when we look at when these cows hit kind of peak lactation time, for us and our herds, they were still out on grass. And in many instances, the quality of that forage may be as well or perhaps slightly better than some of our uh, cows may be getting in the spring calving herds. So I don't know that we would necessarily see much difference per se. Um, the colder environment uh, could influence that some, but being in the southeast, our temperatures are relatively mild. There's probably more coat stress related to mud and wet hair coats uh, per se than temperature. We, we seem to hang in that 35 to 45 degree days as a high and in the 20s or so in the lows and most of the winter. It's a few exceptions on that. Darren and I were out there collecting samples when it was a little colder than that, but um, environmental stress I'd say is pretty minimal, wouldn't you, Darren? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think we, I mean, we had some, I mean, both winters that we did this study were a little bit wetter and, and a tad bit colder than usual, but I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have put it out to as extreme stress there. And, and particularly the UK cattle, they, they weren't in a, I mean, based on their body condition scores, they, they weren't suffering for nutrition. As you look to tie together your actual production data, looking at the way suckle way, looking at weaning weights, and then tying that back to EPDs of the sire and dam, what are some things you learned? All right. Now that's a question I'm more comfortable answering, Aaron. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we were a little scared at first because when we had some of the preliminary uh, data sets and, and some of the initial things that we ran, as you do when you start getting some numbers in, we, we got a little concerned because it didn't look like our milk EPDs were matching up very well with the wean and weight of the calves. But once we got all the data in and the correct uh, adjustments and things like that in, uh, what it showed was is, is that we do an extremely good job. The the milk EPDs now, you know, it, it, we didn't see a one-to-one -one relationship for every increase in milk EPD. We didn't see an increase of one pound in the weaned weight of the calves, um, but there was definitely a positive correlation there. So uh, as the milk EPD went up, the weaning weight of the calves definitely went up as well. Unfortunately, we didn't see that same follow through when we got to our volume of milk that was being produced or the component. As a matter of fact, it was pretty much flatlined. Now, do I think that that's what the physiology is? Absolutely not. I think that was some of our limitations and our ability to to collect, you know, the quality of data that we needed. And, and I think as, as much of that as anything, like I say, was when you're trying to get to these few pounds uh, of, of milk that was, you know, that, that you get in this way suck away for that uh, six hour time period to, to then try and extend to a full day. Uh, there's just so much opportunity for, for just a little variation to impact that so greatly. And so, like I say, we, we didn't see the follow through uh, to the milk components that we would have liked to have seen. 
more precise technology and how to get that data, I, I think would improve the study greatly. I would agree with that there. I mean, you know, even with our scale, the way we had it broke at a tenth of a pound and uh, doing re repeated measurements over a period of time and then averaging that, um, you know, three tenths of a pound, that could be a variation in, in weight and multiply that by the four for that 24 hour period. You know, that's a 1.2 pound difference in milk just by sampling error, if you will. So that is where the the milk machine has its benefits. And so I think that's one of the things we need to kind of consider. But the other thing that I think Dare and I felt like is the way suckle way perhaps gave us a better idea of what maybe a calf would potentially nurse daily versus the machine. The machine's certainly going to give you uh, the full emptying of the udder, but we're not convinced that the, the calf maybe empties the udder completely when it nurses. And, um, that, you know, there's trade-offs to both of those. Uh, we were hoping to be able to overcome that with the numbers that we had, but um, the other part of that might be is uh, there can certainly be some differences in milk potential if we overfeed our heifers and get them too fleshy and the risk of getting fat deposits in the udder and limiting their ability to meet their genetic potential for growth. And as Dare said, our, our herd certainly was over-conditioned compared to the other two herds. And maybe that's part of the bias that we're seeing in the data as well. As you look at the data again across these three herds and look at the data from the University of Kentucky herd, and then you start to think about the clients you work with, what are some take-homes? What are some things that maybe you think you need more information on or, or how might you use this data to advise or give input to producers who are thinking about their level of milk in their cow herd? I guess the, the, First, real strong takeaway because um, you know even though the I think I think most people are comfortable with EPDs today, uh, and particularly for most traits, the one that I still hear producers sort of question on a on a fairly consistent basis is the milk EPD, and I, I think that based on our data and, and under our local environments, it clearly shows that they work that. Um, that the more, you know, if you do put the, the you know, uh, more emphasis on milk, your calves are going to weigh more at weaning time. But I still hope that, that we can uh, convince folks that that does still come at a cost. And, and so it doesn't just happen magically just because that number is there. The fact that those you know, the bulls that have the higher milk EPDs, uh, their daughters raise heavier calves at weaning time uh, is because they are milking more. And the fact that they are milking more is causing a higher strain on the, the nutrition that's going into those cattle. And, and, and so it, it's, not a, it's not a free ticket, free, free meal ticket. Uh, there is a cost to that. I think the other thing that is kind of a takeaway is that... Um, and we, we need to always be thinking about what the physiological changes are. And, and you know, when we think about milky PDs and, and dare, please correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, that's related to weaning weight and, and the impact of milk production potential on weaning weight. And um, there could be other factors that come in to influence that. But maybe this is related to necessarily not higher peak levels, but extending that lactation curve out for a longer period of time. 
that in combination with maybe a change in milk components. So I, I think if nothing else, what we learned is there's certainly an opportunity to gather more data or there's more research needed in this area to begin the, to look at these relationships a little bit further. I might jump in on that because it, it did trigger some thought and some discussions that, that Jeff and I have had in the, in the past in that regard. And that is, is I, I think I mentioned it earlier that, that we have to remember that, that the EPD that we're looking at, that what we call the milk EPD is truly maternal weaning weight. And there is, I mean, even though that milk is the primary component, there's other things like uh, I'm assuming things like the, the calf learning from the, the dam, you know, better grazing options or things like that. There, there's, and what we may find out when we have a more precise way of measuring some of these things is that there's more to that than we realize now, because I don't think we have a real great grasp on really what that maternal contribution is, what part of that we can attribute to milk, what part of that we can attribute to learning or other things uh, that's going on. So to me, I, I would hope that that what we've done in this preliminary sort of a aspect will lead some of the uh, behaviorists or others that, that could look at that a little closer to help us really figure out what what is all what all is involved with that uh, maternal aspect of, of wean and weight. The other thing I'll just add is that it's important to understand that all three of these herds were in the fescue belt region and, you know, the, the impact of in the fight infected tall fescue on reducing prolactin and potentially nutrient flow to the udders, something that needs to continue to be thought about when we look at the influence of genetics and, and the environment interactions. And so all these herds were on, you know, in the fight infected tall fescue pastures. Now, granted in the wintertime, that impact is much less than during the summer, it's, but it still could have a little bit of carryover effect on what we're seeing for milk production. Yeah, I want to jump on that just a little bit. As you think about the genetic potential of the cow to give milk, and then you think about environmental constraints, how do you think about that as you think about this project? And then also as you think about working with clients? Ultimately, that was the purpose, Aaron, is, is because I, I, I definitely think here in Kentucky, and, and we don't have the worst environments uh, in the country in, in terms of being able to meet cattle's nutritional needs. There's, there's a lot of places that, that have greater constraints than we do, but ours are significant. And my concern is, and what we you know, try and, uh, and, and preach all the time to our clientele, our producers is, is that, you know, that we can overextend. And when we do overextend, when we do combine extremely heavy mature weights along with extreme milk production and don't meet their nutritional needs, the greatest thing that's impacted is they start losing body condition. And we all know that the relationship between body condition score and reproduction is, is a very high relationship uh, in the negative direction. So if we take the, the flesh off their back, through production, uh, our cost is, is getting those cattle rebred the next year. And so with reproduction being probably the trait that has the most, the highest economic impact on our herds, the cost of that production could be significant. And so we just want people to keep that in mind and, and keep, keep their match, their genetics to their resources. That's, that's the key phrase all the time is match your genetics to your resources. 
And I, I think Dare would agree that, you know, when we think about the potential greatest at-risk categories, some of that's where maybe our genetic progress is in our herd and those young females because they're still trying to grow. And um, oftentimes we maybe will separate those heifers out to, to grow them and develop them. But it seems like in a lot of our herds, once they hit breeding age, nutritionally they're managed as a cow, even though they have maybe higher nutritional needs, particularly in our smaller farm herds over here, you know, where we're dealing with maybe average herd sizes of 30 to 35. Um, a lot of times those heifers, once they hit breeding age, are kind of maybe just treated as a cow nutritionally and that too high level of production in relationship to feed resources is where we can run into problems and that depreciation value and that young females maybe not recovered if she comes up open. Anything else on this topic that you would think would be of value to producers as you think about what you learned and then also where you may go with this in the future? My biggest thing, Aaron, is just uh, to tell producers to, to don't get caught up in, in, you know, the, the current trend of the industry or whatever else is, is the fastest way to get in trouble. Uh, the best thing is to self-analyze your operation and do it in an honest and open manner and, and understand what your limitations are from a resource standpoint. Uh, and, and really what's your, where you excel and take advantage of those. Don't, don't hurt yourself. You can, uh, we can get ourselves into trouble, uh, in too many ways to do it, uh, to have a self-inflicted wound. So if you know you have some nutritional limitations, then, then don't shoot for that top end bull on the, the milk and size standpoint, uh, stay within your means. And I, I guess that would be my message to folks. And I think my take home is we, we often hear, well, granddad didn't have to do that or granddad did it different, but I think it's important that we all recognize that the genetics have changed in the last, you know, three to four decades. And that may influence the nutritional needs of our cows. And yet our forage base in our area is still predominantly tough fescue. And so, you know, we may need to think about um, improving our forage programs if we're going to try to keep up with the genetic trends. Or like Dare said, just be careful and don't always chase that more pounds, more pounds, more pounds, because, you know, a 300 pound calf is worth a lot more than no calf. Well, there, Jeff, I appreciate your time. Thanks again for joining me today. Thank you, Aaron. Have a good day. Thanks, Aaron. But for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to visit the BIF Conference website. Again, that's www.bifconference.com. Also, if you have questions for Dare or Jeff, their contact information is available online. And again, they're both with the University of Kentucky.